Well, today we will be continuing in 2 Corinthians. We'll be looking at 2 Corinthians 7, 2-4. So if you would open with me there, I'm going to start reading in chapter 6 because this is the conclusion of that little section in class chapter 6. <clears throat> we read about Korah's rebellion and the after effects in our Old Testament reading today. And I picked that text because you can see some parallels in the problems Paul is dealing with. People are quickly led astray by people who tell them what they want to hear. They want a better life. They want you know, they wanted their fields and their vineyards and their land flowing with milk and honey. And Paul had yet to deliver it. Or, um, Moses had yet to deliver it. Paul has the same problem. People want to have their best life now. And Paul has been giving them, if you want to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. So they both had their detractors, people who thought they could lead better. And as we saw in Korah's rebellion, you know, they, these are men who had seen the miracles of the Lord in Egypt. They had seen the miracles of the Lord during the Exodus. They knew full well what was going on with the Lord. He was real. He had made decisions. He had chosen that they're saying, no, Moses and Aaron are leading wrong. We can do a better job. And we can fix what God has said by adjusting it to our preference, and we'll all be happier. And the result was, of course, God was the one leading them, and God was the one who directly punished them, swallowing them up with the ground, taking them live down to the grave, and then pouring out fire upon them and sending a plague to punish them. The problem of people thinking they would make a better leader than God and be able to do things better than what God's word said is because of man's nature. The two biggest problems man had is one is he wants to be independent and in charge. He doesn't want even a God leading him. And second is he thinks that he can do a better job than those who follow God rightly. And that's really the problem the church has had all down through the ages from the time it starts with Moses leading the people till this very day and to the very end. So we'll be looking primarily at verses 2 to 4 in chapter 7. And they conclude this lengthy section of 2 Corinthians. It started way back in chapter 2, verse 14, where Paul is talking about and defending his apostolic ministry, and really talking about and defending the true ministry versus the people who want to adjust and massage and distort and otherwise corrupt the word of God. And this is kind of the transition section to what follows, where Paul will be looking at the collection for Jerusalem. One of the main reasons he's writing them is his next visit, he's going to be taking up a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. They you know, the members of the church, the believers, were expelled from the synagogues. They were blacklisted, essentially. They were made no longer citizens of Israel. And they're really having a hard time of it. And so those who had were taking up a collection to send to them to help support them through the persecution and the difficult time they were experiencing. And he wants to prepare them for that. And then after, of course, that section, he goes back to talking about the ministry and vindicating the true ministry. His conduct, his suffering, speaks of his vision and his unselfishness. 
So it comes back to this topic again, but this is kind of a transition where he moves on to the next topic. So I'm going to start reading at verse 11 of chapter 6. He's, talked, he's spoken about his suffering and the obstacles people have put in the way and saying that he's put no obstacle, but then lists the obstacles he's had to endure. And in chapter 6 of Second Corinthians, verse 11, For we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship is light with darkness? What accord of Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our afflictions, I am overflowing with joy. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for all of the accounts of the history of the problems, the sufferings of your people, how they dealt with them, and the encouraging teachings that go with them. We thank you for recording to us the account of Korah's rebellion, the account of the problems going on in Corinth, and this letter that we're reading. And pray, Lord, that as we look at it, You'd open our hearts to understand and receive the things that you give us and fill us with your spirit and strength that we might put them into practice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this little passage, verses 2 through 4, make room in your hearts for us, sounds very similar through chapter 6, verse 11 through 13, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. Open your hearts also. Widen your hearts also. And the two work as wrappers around the separation passage. Paul calls them to open their hearts to him, a true minister of God. He points out that their distance from him, from him as God's servant and from God himself is not the fault of Paul and the other servants of God, but is something within themselves. Their hearts are closed and hard. They've got a problem with their affections being divided. 
They have given their love, their respect, and their support for people who are ministering contrary to God's word. They're at odds with God's word, and they're at odds with God's servants, and they're following these men who, who are mocking and condemning the ministry of God, the ministry of God, changing God's word, modifying it to suit their purposes, and have become essentially enemies of the kingdom. And that's why we have that separation passage in the middle. He's saying, do not be yoked with, unequally yoked with these unbelievers, in verse 14. And again, go out from their midst and separate from them. The separation from these false and useless ministers and ministries, uh, the corruption was many different ways, right? As we read through the book, we find there's paganism, there's the Jewish reliance on the law for salvation, there's idolatry, there's some men who are just proud and think they can do a better job and want to be the leaders. And, and all of these men are battling against Paul and they're all peddling the word. They're, they're modifying it to suit their hearers' desires. They're modifying it to get people to follow them. They're modifying it to get people's financial support. Figure out what the person wants and needs, meet their need, and they'll be happy with you instead of giving them what God says they need, which is the truth in his word. The point I think he's making is their distance from him and is a distance from God, and it's caused by their being willing to welcome in these teachers who are teaching contrary to God. Now, Jesus says you cannot follow two masters. You cannot follow the love of money and follow him. But I think that comes into play here. You cannot listen to the true faithful preaching of the word and also somebody who is modifying the word and corrupting it in order to get their followers. You can't do both at the same time. If God is God, follow God. If God is meaningless to you, it seems evil to serve the Lord, then follow something else. Leave the name Christian behind, and that's where the big problem and the strife all comes in. His point is, though, you can't love both. You can't be yoked together with both of them at the same time. Sharing your love, sharing your respect, sharing your honor with both God and false teachers and unbelievers of every kind, you know, teaching their own religious views that are contrary to God. Paul says that he has preached the whole counsel of God, and that is going to put him at odds with those who are against some of what God says or who feel that it's hurtful or it's unhelpful to their personal ministry to teach those things, or they just don't believe it. He says, make room in your hearts for us. Put these things out. How do they make room? I, my wife has enjoyed watching these YouTubers who are dealing with clutter and hoarding. And we all know how that is, right? We have 200 little things, and I'm not guilty of that. My, my box full of electronic components and wires and cables was very useful. And yeah, sure, there's no readers for 10-inch floppy drives anymore, but, or 8-inch floppy drives, but you never know. The data on there could be useful. And so we have these things piled up in our houses. And when we get something important, we don't have a place for it. And then we can never find it. And that's kind of the problem we're having here. They've filled their heart with things that are worthless, with teachings that are not right, the teachings that are incomplete, 
the teachings that are just plain wrong. It's filling up the places in their heart. And that's where you know, the truth goes, but there's something already there, and it's not complete truth, or it's completely wrong, and it's in the way. There's no place for it. And he's saying there's no place for us in your heart because you've put these things that are against us in your heart. And you need to understand you know, we're following God faithfully. They're corrupting God's word. You can't put us both together. We don't mix. And you can't put us in if they're already there. You need to remove that. You can't have both. Paul wrote in Romans 16, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Romans 16, 17, and 18. It was a common problem in Paul's day. It's a common problem all the way to our day. And it was a common problem all the way back to really the establishment of a formal church in, in uh, the, during the Exodus. It's an ongoing problem, as I said before, because of our nature. What do we need to deal with? What, what, what is he calling them to deal with in this passage? Remember, give up the love for those worthless things, for those teachers who are teaching false or incomplete doctrine, for those teachers who are tickling your ears. Give them up. Make room for what's really good. You know, God commanded through John, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2, 15-17. Why do I associate that passage with this? Because they are loving the things of the world, the things offered by these worldly ministers and teachers. It's not any different. They're loving perhaps their sin. Don't talk to me about my sin because I don't want to hear it. I love my sin, sin is of the world. Don't tell me my desires are wrong. Tell me they're okay. Tell me that God wants me to be happy. The pride of life, I, I want to be somebody important. We all do. Don't tell me that's wrong. Don't tell me to submit myself to God and lower, humble myself before his omnipotent hand. That's not what I want. False teachers will teach you the things you love and not teach you the things you don't want to hear. Uh, I remember somebody saying something to the effect that if you can tell the congregation to hate somebody else's sin, they'll love you. But if you tell them to hate their own sin, they'll hate you. And that's a very true uh, thought. We, we collect false teachers who tickle our ears because we don't want to be stressed and troubled and hurt. But if you love such ministers and such teachers, how can you also love God? What partnership is righteousness with lawlessness, Paul asked? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? We just read in 6, 
14 through 15. Uh, you need to sweep out such people, sweep out those ministries, and make room for God's servants and God's true ministers and true ministries of the gospel. Uh, I've seen it a lot in churches. People will support a Roman Catholic ministry because they're helping keep babies alive from abortion. You know, what, what link do we have with those people? What fellowship do we have with their, their belief and their condemnation of us into hell? How can we support that? There, there's got to be ministries that could be supported that are doing the work of God. And we need to be careful to sweep those things out and make room for the ones that are going to do the right work. Are they as effective? Not always. You know, the popular religions of the day are going to have access to more funds than the unpopular truth. But we should be looking for and supporting and helping maintain and encourage ministries that do right. So we've got to give up our love for such worthless things and make room to love what is right and what is good before God. Now, he makes that distinction again to drive the pinpoint home in the rest of the verse. He's essentially saying, we're not like those false teachers. We do not wrong anyone. Remember back in 1 Corinthians 5, we talked about the sinner who's bold in his sin in front of everybody in calling themselves a brother. And he taught them to separate from them. I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Now, we, we don't support unbelievers and we shouldn't be listening to them, but also we shouldn't be dealing with believers who are living an open lie, an open sin. And Paul is saying, I'm not one of those. I'm not guilty of any of those things. Why are you pulling away from me? His innocence, he has been asserting throughout his entire letter and will continue through the end of the letter to show them he's innocent, but also shows them that these false apostles, these false teachers are wronging not just Paul, but them. By sowing division and bitterness in the church, they are wronging the whole church. And we, we see very clearly as we read through First and Second Corinthians that these people were really attacking Paul, really dividing the church between those who follow Paul's teaching and those who follow them. And that divisive spirit was permeating through the church, even through the believing part of the church. Some people say, oh, I follow Paul or Apollos. And that kind of division-making is just terrible. But it had to be because, at least in part, because you need to divide from the people who are teaching falsely and encouraging sin and making the mercies of God a license for immorality and the various other things that he accuses these false teachers of in all of his writings. I can imagine... From what is written, they were accusing Paul of stumbling and hindering people from coming to God. I've been accused of this myself. By you know teaching things that are not acceptable to society, you drive people away. Oh, you're putting a stumbling block if you're preaching about you know, homosexuality boldly 
people will not want to hear and they'll turn away and they won't hear the gospel and it's your fault for teaching that. Oh, you read the passage that talks about women being silent in the church and people walked out. See, you stumbled those people. It's your sin. And you can see them saying this to Paul. You can imagine it because of the way he defends himself and the way he responds to them over and over again. You shouldn't be making such a fuss about blank, fill in the blank, because it's hindering people from coming to the church and coming to God. If you talk, you can't talk about idolatry because it alienates, alienates the pagans. You know, this is our culture you're attacking. Why would we listen? You can't talk about the law rightly used because it alienates the Jews who have a wrong use for it. Instead of convicting of sin, the Jews think it's the means of salvation. If you teach that, they won't come. They'll persecute. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead, that's foolishness to the Greeks. If you teach that, you're stumbling them. Sexual sin, oh, everybody's doing it. Oh, nobody's hurt by it. You're stumbling people when you preach on those things. The list could go on and on. Paul talks about all of these in this letter and in the other letters, the things people don't want to hear. But it's not Paul who wronged them by preaching the whole counsel of God, but those who corrupt the word are the ones who have wronged them. Paul, by telling you what you're doing is sin, turn from it, is helping you. you know, we all know the story of the child who wants to put his hand in the fire because it's pretty. Do you let them put their hand in the fire? You say, that's okay, I love you anyway. No, I mean, take the hand, you slap it and say, don't do that. Love is to tell somebody to turn from the path of danger and destruction. It is loveless to protect yourself and your ministry and protect your happiness and your finances by letting people live in sin, especially those who are brothers. And for the church, as we've seen, God has appointed the ministers to essentially be the watchman on the wall, to sound the trumpet, warn of danger. If they don't do that, they're guilty of the blood of sinners. And so Paul preaches the whole counsel of God to protect himself from that accusation by God. Because these men preach and teach and peddle only what supports and helps them. Now, what are their motivations? We'll be looking at this more in detail from what he says. But the first one Love of power and abuse of power. You know, think of Third John, Diotrephes. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he was doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. That's what's happening to Paul. And are not content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers and stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. 3 John, verses 9 and 10. You know, that that love for power, that desire to be first, can even take over godly men, where they they want to be the one who rules the church. I I shared before a pastor who got very upset when he found out people were reading books other than the Bible, because, you know, they were putting that author up on a pedestal that giving them love that only belongs to me as the pastor. Well, the pastor doesn't have any love belonging to him. The love should be of God. And you might love the pastor for his faithfulness to God, but it's not something that is owed or due 
to any other than God. But men want that. They want to be first. They want that power. And it's a sad thing. And this is really essentially what the Corinthians were doing. They were loving that power and wanting to be the ones who make the decisions. And some of them perhaps deluding themselves that their teaching would be better than the teaching of Paul, the apostle of God. Paul goes on to say, we have not corrupted anyone. By preaching the whole counsel of God, he's turning them from their corruption. He's turning them from their sin. He's calling them to repentance. It's the exact opposite of corrupting them. He's teaching them to be not corrupt. And these teachers who are peddling the word, even if they're faithful believers and they believe the truth, but they're not willing to say the truth to their people who need to hear it because of the division it'll cause and because of the conflict and the troubles and maybe even the persecution, by not telling them they're going the wrong way, they're corrupting them. You know, if you're going down the road and the bridge is out, so you turn around and you're coming back and you see somebody flying down the road the opposite direction, you say, oh, pity. <laughs> no, you're trying to stop them from driving off the bridge into the, and crashing. And by not telling them, you're really guilty of the corruption that they have. Teachers who peddle God's word, either by teaching contrary to God's word or by omitting the things that offend, are leading people to corruption, one actively and one passively. But the result is both the same. In Jeremiah 23, the Lord says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, now, the prophets in those days, they receive a message from God and they repeat the message to the people and explain it. And essentially, well, that's what the minister and the teacher is supposed to do. They get the message from God's word, not directly from God, and then they expound the message to the people. And so there's a strong parallel between the work of the prophets in general and the work of the minister and teacher. He says, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. And that would be the modern church in our day. They, they try to help you with your conscience when your conscience is struggling and rebuking you for your sin. They help to quiet your conscience by telling you sin is not necessarily sin or by not telling you that it is sin. Now, the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth is what we need to hear. And those who corrupt it either by telling untruths or by omitting unpopular truths are really corrupting their hearers. And thirdly, he says, we've taken advantage of no one. Meaning he's not defrauding them or cheating them. I remember dealing with a false pastor in Balm down in Cambodia. And he had basically become a pastor because rich foreigners support pastors and give them money. And he'd been living off the money foreigners were giving him. He'd been involved in adultery. He'd cheated people out of their homes. Uh, he'd gotten quite rich. Of course, he needed to hire a bodyguard to protect him 
from the people who are so angry with him that they would stone him. But a lot of people, they get, they get into the ministry around the world because you do have a better life than you would at a regular job. In America, the opposite is true. The best-paid Bible-believing pastors make a lot less than they could in, in the business world. But a lot of people are in the ministry for what they can get out of it. And certainly we see that in the mega churches. If you're really good at conning people, oh, the Lord says he's going to strike me dead if I don't get a million dollars by Friday. Well, uh, people send them money. Paul says, spends a lot of time talking about this, not just in Corinth, but in all of his letters, that you know, he doesn't, he isn't in this for the money, and to show people that, he earns his own money. Remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Well, we proclaim the gospel to you, First Thessalonians 2.9. His tent-making ministry was one of the ways he supported himself. Another way was what happened here in Corinth. where he says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening any of you in any way. 2 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. Because they were being exploited Paul was very serious that he would not accept any of their money for himself in his work. Even though he teaches that the workman deserves his wages and you shall not muzzle the ox who treads out the grain so that he can eat some of it, uh, he deserves the wage, but he's not going to take it because he doesn't want them to confuse him with these fraudsters who are preaching people what people want to hear in order to get money. And he's, one of his main purposes in coming to them is to raise money for Jerusalem, to take care of the saints there who have been harshly persecuted. Without being citizens, without having access to the courts, without having access often to their own lands, which would be seized, they were having a very rough time. And concerning the offering for them, you know, he's trying to raise money for them, and they're apparently accusing Paul of being in it for the money and going to use it for his own benefit. He says of Timothy, thanks to God who put it, or Titus rather, into the heart of Titus, the same earnest care I have for you, not only, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. And we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Not only that, he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one may blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters. 
but who is now more earnest than ever because of this great confidence in you. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8. We'll, we'll go through that verse in more detail when we get there, but his point is, you know, I'm going to go minister this, yes, therefore, you know, send these people. And later he actually says, and you know, send somebody along yourself. In other words, so that the accountability is there, not in carefully kept books, because that would be easy to fake in their day, but in an eyewitness being there to see where it went. And that practice is, I think, important. And it helps to remind the people of his innocence. No, you did not give me the money and I go off and say I spent it on what you asked. I proved that I'm spending it for what you wanted me to spend it for. I'm not being dishonest and saying, just trust me and give me the petty cash and I'll work it out. But he's saying, you know, I'll be accountable. Send somebody to be my account, my accountability partner in making sure this is done for you rightly. So he's reminded them that he's innocent. They have no grounds for separation and innocent as far as defrauding them as well. But he hasn't taken advantage of them is his main point. And there's three distinct points there, right? I haven't taken advantage of you, exploited you for your money. I haven't corrupted you and I haven't done any harm to you. Therefore, it's not us who are bad. Those smooth-talking, encouraging false teachers are the ones who have wronged you. We have done no wrong to you. And then he says, verse 3, I say this, I do not say this to condemn you. Now, you could certainly take it as condemnation. You know, they've shifted their love from God's true servants to these corrupting false servants. And... There could be some condemnation there. Remember the Galatians. They were in a lot of trouble for abandoning the truth. He writes to them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Galatians 1, 6 and 7. They got a rebuke, a hard rebuke. Here he's just showing them, look, you know, you're, you're turning away from us. You're not giving us your love. You're not listening properly anymore. And you're, you're going off you know, down the broad road that leads to destruction. You've gotten off the narrow path. And he's doing that lovingly and graciously. They were being a little too open-minded. As, yes, you need to listen to people and understand what they're saying, but when you realize they're teaching contrary to Scripture, contrary to God, contrary to what you've believed, you really need to be careful and not give them you know, the, the full open-minded treatment, but challenge, you know, look, I'm going to have to stop you there. Why are you saying this when God says this? And make that determination. So he's not condemning them that they're turning away from him, but he's admonishing them to turn back from following these people who can do nothing for their good. And he's calling on them to reopen their hearts to the true ministers and true ministries of God. And it's continuing on, he says, and for, I said before, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. We looked at that passage earlier, for we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. 
You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Uh, he said before, they were in his heart. His love for them is very great. His desire for them is great. You know, true love is wanting the best thing possible for the other person. His love for the Corinthians is that they know God, that they enjoy God, that they please God. And that is his, his heart, loving, heart love for them, to, and to the point that he is willing to die together or live together. Dying together was a real possibility in that day. Uh, persecutions came up, and Paul had a few close calls with death. and would have a few more before he was finally martyred for the faith. Uh, he said, I'm willing to die with you for the truth. And also that I'm willing to live with you here and especially in eternity. You, know, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what happens now. When the Lord is, has come and there's a new heaven and a new earth, we will be alive in the flesh together again forever. And that is a great source of his hope, a great source of his joy. We saw that in the Thessalonian letters, you know, that, that promise of the new, the new life, the resurrection, the new body is a source of great joy and happiness and confidence. Now, he says he is acting with great boldness towards them. According to Paul's adversaries in Corinth, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. 2 Corinthians 10.10. They despised Paul, his skill as a debater and a wise man, according to the Greek paganism. Uh, Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. You know, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul is saying in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, I am not coming to you as a wise man. In fact, he says, I set aside it all to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Paul is implying that you know, I'm not a wise man. I'm not a scholastic leader. You know, these people coming in, bringing in their great philosophy and rhetoric and showing themselves superior by their ability to manipulate and control and sound sophisticated. Paul threw all that aside. And they considered him weak and foolish. His words here, I'm acting with boldness to you, are really explained in chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, referring to their mocking insults. I beg of you that when I am in prison, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence. I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So he's saying, I'm not, I don't want to have to be bold with you. I don't want to have to stand in front of you and rebuke you sharply and condemn you and tell you to turn from your ways or put you out of the church. I don't want to go that route. So I'm being bold now in my writing that you may think about it and turn from your wicked ways. He is boldly calling them really to the true Christian life. 
That was his practice everywhere, remember? He was on trial before King Agrippa in Acts 26, 19 through 21. He says, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision of God's salvation. But I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. But think about what he's telling everyone everywhere. Repent, turn to God, live that new life. And he's bold in telling them that and calling them to that new life. He says, I have great pride in you. On what basis, you might ask? I think it starts back in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Remember, for you yourselves are a letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. For you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but tablets of human hearts. We talked about how that was talking about our regeneration, about God taking out our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. Well, his confidence and his pride in them is that through God, through him, brought about that great miracle of taking out the heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. And more than that, people were able to see that change, that new life, that new following of God faithfully and desiring to know God and to be with him and to please him in everything they do. That was evident in their lives. And that gave him great confidence. And here he says great pride. Of course, he also is writing in this very optimistic little passage as if they had already opened their hearts to him. They had already enlarged their hearts for him. They'd already dealt with these adversaries in the right way. And he has pride that they will hear him and listen to him and do what God requires of them. And he says, I am filled with comfort. For all those same reasons I just mentioned, his heart is comforted. He is surrounded by adversity, surrounded by harassment and persecution and trials and troubles. His Corinthians are being attacked from within and without. And yet he says, I have comfort because you have shown that your heart belongs to God. You have shown that he has made you a new man and you have shown that you're pursuing that. And look, here's a way you need to improve your walk with God by putting aside these ear ticklers. And so he has great comfort in all his afflictions. And in all his afflictions, he is overflowing with joy. All of this, his confidence in them, his love for them, his joy in them, it shows him the love of God in their lives and in his and brings joy. His ministry is filled with trials and troubles, and some days he probably wondered, why am I doing this? Well, it's all worth it when he sees the work of God in their lives and in their hearts. And so even in spite of all his afflictions, he was overflowing with joy. So now we finish this little section where Paul is saying, you know, your love really essentially needs to be for God, for God's people, for the things of the Lord, not distracted by these people who tickle your ears. 
not distracted by the desires of this life that other men will help you to feel confident and comfortable about, but rather love the Lord and put him on his throne and put God's people in their place in your heart and make no room for these others who are working contrary to God and corrupting you and deceiving you and exploiting you. So let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly and ask that you would glorify yourselves in our lives. Help us, Lord, to unplug the things from our heart that we love that are contrary to you, contrary to your word. People who tickle our ears, teachings who tickle our ears. That, Lord, we might draw near to you and live our lives right by you. And we pray, Lord, that we would show our affection for you by loving you and loving your people and loving the faithful and sound teachings of the word, whether they be from the minister or the elder, a good book, or another pastor on YouTube or elsewhere. Pray that we would all learn to love the right things and fill our heart with them and not make any room in our hearts for sin and for false teachers and compromisers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.